would you bow your hearts and your heads with me this morning as we, as we pray. Lord, what do you want to say to us today? What do you want to give to us today? How do you want to correct us? How do you want to instruct us? How, how do you want to encourage us, Lord? We need you. We need you. We need you, Lord. We, we haven't been able to convince ourselves that we can, we can do this on our own. We, we need you. Every bit as much the moment that we trusted you as Savior and Lord to this very moment in this season of our walk with you, we, we need you and we ask you to fill us with your Spirit. Fill, fill us with your Spirit, Lord. Would you fill the preacher, but would you pour your Spirit out upon the congregation of your people, Lord? Just... Would you just do today what you're so good at, and that is making your presence known. Fill us, Lord, with your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We're back again on the subject, what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Probably no more controversial subject in the church today than, than that subject. Part of the controversy comes from some on either side of the issue or however you might want to define that are absolutely convinced that the way they view the filling of the Spirit is the only way to view the filling of the Spirit. And as a result, we get divisions, and as a result, we've, we've, we have a hard time just really hearing and maybe going back over again and clinging to what the Scripture itself says about that important matter, what it means to be filled with the Spirit of the living Jesus. More than just remembering what he said, more than trying to follow his example. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit of Jesus? Now, at the risk of ruffling a feather or two, at the risk of being controversial, depending on where you're coming from, I, I want us to look again at this passage and maybe some additional verses this morning. I want to try to help with a sense of the whole perspective of this matter of being filled with the Spirit. How... How important is that? Is it, a, is it a footnote? Is it an asterisk? Is it um, an addendum? Or, or is it somehow really a big deal? A big deal. Let's go back again to where this all started, where the, where the, the matter of the Spirit being poured out began. If you would find the Gospel of Luke... And um, chapter 3, Luke chapter 3, Jesus has not publicly been made known yet. He's, he's still in the wings waiting, but there is someone who 
is announcing his coming. And that one's name is John, John the baptizer. So before Jesus ever entered with his statement, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, John the Baptist had this to say when he was asked, who, who, do, who are you? Who, who, who are you? Are you the Messiah? Are you the one we're to look for? John chapter 3 verse 16 says this, John answered and said to them, said to them all, as for me, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I. And I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. That is repeated almost in exactly the same words in all four of the gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All record the forerunner of Jesus... Elijah, Jesus would refer to him, one who has come in the spirit and power of Elijah to announce that the Messiah is here. In all four of the Gospels, John says, here is how you'll know the Messiah is in your presence. Here is how you will know that you have met the Messiah. He will baptize you. He will have the power to baptize you with his spirit and with fire. John will say, I can baptize you with water. I can get your clothes wet. I can get your skin dripping. But there is only one, and here is how you will know you have met him. He will drench your spirit with his spirit and with fire. That's how it began. Jesus then would say and recorded in the Gospels, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Seeming, it can look like as we read those two verses and those two statements and they're repeated, they're repeated, that they have no connection. That there's, there's a difference between Jesus baptizing you with the Spirit and with fire and the kingdom coming, the kingdom at hand, as Jesus would describe. However, when you jump all the way across the life of Jesus and his teachings, and you go across the time of his death on the cross, his burial, and his being raised from the dead, he's remaining for 40 more days after he was raised from the dead. And they were seeing him. Hundreds of people were seeing him. Hundreds of people were listening to him talk, to him teach, evidently. And there was one subject that he taught on. And we've spoken of this before, but I just want to remind you, I'm hoping that some of these things will be etched into your personal theology of the Spirit, your personal theology of what it means to be filled with the Spirit from the Scripture, gleaned straight from the passages of the Scripture. Remember what we referenced now in in John, what John said in Luke, what Jesus has said about the coming of the kingdom, the kingdom of God is at hand. Find the book of Acts, if you would, please, in Acts chapter 1, verse 3, Jesus is raised from the dead. 
he has finished that part of his, of his mission. His blood was poured out for the forgiveness of the sins of the world. To these he also presented himself alive, verse 3, after his convincing, after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Verse 8, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, right where you are now, and in all Judea and Samaria where you'll be sent and even to the remotest part of the earth. The kingdom of God coming was linked as synonymous with the promise of the Father which is linked with the outpouring of the Spirit upon the believers in Jesus. They are different terms, but they're referring to the same thing. And I want to submit to you folks, this is no footnote. This is no afterthought. This is no small part of the plan. For Jesus to say, this is the promise of the Father. He's saying, because he's now alive from the dead, he has been crucified. He's wanting them to understand that the promise of the Father was not the cross. The promise of the Father was not the shed blood for sins. The promise of the Father was not even the empty tomb. The promise of the Father was that the Father would pour out his Spirit upon people who would be willing to receive that outpouring. It, it, it's as if it's the culmination, not just a fork in the road, not just a sidetrack. Paul would say, he helps us understand, so who is the Spirit? He says, the Lord, now the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, he always referenced Lord to Jesus. Jesus was Lord. The Lord is Jesus. He says, the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. But the Lord is the Spirit. So, so when it is the Spirit being poured out, it is the Spirit of the Lord Jesus being poured out. It is the Spirit of Jesus, not the crucified Jesus. This is very important. And you'll have to just excuse me if I get a little worked up about this. This is not the spirit of the humiliated Jesus. This is not the spirit of the Jesus who was criticized and ridiculed by the Sanhedrin and the, 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 the scholars of his day, the religious police of his day. This is, this is not the humiliated Jesus spirit. The Spirit was not poured out until Jesus had been raised back up to the right hand of the Father, reclothed with every ounce of authority that he had before he was 
emptied of, he emptied himself of those prerogatives and was and took upon the form of a baby and was born to the Virgin Mary and grew up as a man. He, he didn't just come into being at Bethlehem in Mary's womb. He was God, the very God. He was the creator God. By him, John will say, everything that has come into being came into being by Jesus, pre-Mary, pre-Bethlehem. He humbled himself of all of those attributes and all of those levels of priority to command the angel armies to be omniscient, to know everything, omnipresent, to be everywhere at the same time. He laid aside all of that when he humbled himself and became obedient to the servanthood of the Father's plan that he would come to this earth to become the Lamb of God who would be a human, a man. It would be human blood that would be poured out for the sins of the world. The Creator, when Christ, that, that amazing part of that old song, when Christ, the mighty maker, died for man, the creature's sin. Heaven was, in, was in, in, in stunned silence more than likely when the angels and, and, and all the ones who would have been a part of that setting watched what was happening on the cross, that it was Jesus the creator, it was Jesus Mary's creator, it was Jesus Abraham's creator, it was Jesus David's creator who gave up everything that was his in heaven. And he came and took up on the form of a human baby and grew up, lived a sinless life, went to the cross with pure blood. If there had been any sin whereby he had gotten ahead of God and missed God by doing too much or fallen behind because the command was too difficult, he missed, he missed in no point. He hid in every spot. His, his, his blood was spotless, therefore he was able to die on the cross in our behalf as a pure and spotless Lamb of God taking our place. As great as that is, as wonderful as that is, as precious as that is to us, that is not the promise of the Father. That we got to let that in. The, the, the promise of the Father was not the cross. The promise of the Father was not the release from sin. Take it a little bit farther. The promise, of the, the, the promise of the Father was not even the completion of the New Testament. That, that all of the books that would be written about him and because of him, that was not the promise of the Father, that you would have a full Bible in your lap. Or that you would, be, you would have a sacrifice on the cross. Now, now stay with me. I'm just, I'm just reporting to you what your book says. The promise of the Father, Jesus is referring to. It, Jesus speaks of the promise of the Father, but he's the one who has been crucified and raised from the dead, so it couldn't be the cross. He's saying the promise of the Father is what John said. <laughs> what John said. John said, there's one coming who's mightier than me. I'm not worthy to untie his shoe." I get you wet with water, but there's one coming who has the power to drench your spirit with his spirit and to cause you to be drenched with fire 
Fire, energy, supernatural, beyond human strength. Who ever heard of fire burning in a human heart? The terms seem to be mutually inconsistent. But that was the promise. There is one coming who will set you on fire. There is one coming who will drench your spirit with his spirit, meaning that your spirit with all of its weaknesses, with all of its inadequacies, with all of its lacks, your spirit will be overcome by another spirit, his spirit. So the promise of the Father is not the cross. The promise of the Father is not the completion of the New Testament canon. The promise of the Father is one and the same with what John spoke about. Is one and the same with what Jesus said. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of God manifests is going to be you being clothed with power because the Spirit will be poured out upon you. A little bit more on that, on that promise statement. Go back to Luke and the last chapter of Luke. Luke chapter 24, Jesus again, he's, he's, he's been raised from the dead. This is um, the human author Luke, the gospel of Luke, who also wrote the book of Acts. So he continues on in Acts with more of the details about the spirit of Jesus being poured out and how that was made the early chapters of church history so amazing to read, but we're here, here we find before Acts starts, he's, he's finishing up his gospel of Luke. Luke. Luke chapter 24, verse 44. Now he said to them, Jesus speaking to them, alive from the dead, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scripture. Now, can I just stop right there? And I don't want to, I don't, I'm getting messing anybody's junk here real quick. But, but, but this, this thing of us somehow believing that if I have a Bible, then I have enough. If I have a Bible, if I can go to Romans, I can go to 1 Thessalonians, I can find Psalms then I'm bright enough and God's expecting me to just understand and get the in-depth of the in-depth of the in-depth of it all on my own. It was never intended to be that way. We can academically parse every verb, decline every noun, go through all of the syntax and have the historical references down as they need to be, proving context. But we can still miss so much of the heart of what the love of our souls wrote in that book for us to enjoy, i.e. the Pharisees and the members of the Sanhedrin. They, the scribes in those days had so much of the Old Testament committed to, to, to memory that it was believed that if all of the scrolls had been destroyed in the first century, if Rome had destroyed it all, or, or whoever had come along and, and just decided we're doing away with the Jewish culture, that those scribes could have from memory collectively rewritten verbatim, accurately, the entire Old Testament. And yet when God shows up, when the one who authored all of those books showed up, 
They didn't see him. They didn't recognize him. They didn't get it. Wonderful truth here. If the indwelling Holy Spirit, if the presence of the Spirit is indeed, is indeed the presence of Jesus, then what Jesus did in Luke 24 to open the minds of his disciples, to understand what the books of the law referencing him really meant and what Psalms really meant and the Proverbs really meant, prophets really meant. If Jesus could, able, could do it with them back then so that they could understand the end depth of so is he able to do with you in the morning at 8 o'clock or in the evening at night when you're by yourself and you've got your Bible open. Lord, speak to me, teach me, help me, open my mind to understand the Scripture. The Bible was never intended to be read and expected to be fully understood or appreciated just by me alone, you alone, with our human faculties at work. It's a divine book. It's a supernatural book. And in order to get it, we need him to open our hearts and minds in order to appreciate it. Amen? So that's why we cherish this book. Continue on. And he said to them, verse 46, Thus it is written, that the Christ, the Messiah, written in the Old Testament, that the Christ should suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You're witnesses of these things. And then watch verse 49. And behold, I am sending forth the promise of, of my Father upon you. But you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. If we didn't have Jesus referencing the promise of the Father after his crucifixion, we might think from this verse in Luke 24 that the promise of the Father had to do with the impending events, the things that are about to happen. But because these things are spoken following, following his resurrection, his burial, his resurrection, we have to get it. And folks, I just, I, I don't know how to make this big enough. You know, I don't know how to blow this up big enough. That the promise of the Father, the promise, definite article in front of the noun promise, the promise of the Father was not yet completed when Jesus died, was buried, and was raised again. The promise was still waiting. The promise. The promise. Oh, my goodness. Father, if there is a promise, and it's one singular promise that you've made to me, I want it. You're good, you're, you're, you're powerful, you're loving, you're merciful, you're wise. You, you, all of the things about you from your great heart. Oh, you made me a promise. I want that promise. I want to know that promise. I want that promise to be mine. So what was the promise? We just mentioned Jesus in verse of Acts 1. I want you to wait. He had taught him for 40 days. Let me say this. He had taught him for 40 days on the subject of the kingdom. Things that would happen 
things that would be the, the rule and order of the kingdom, Think, things that would be going on as a part of kingdom operation. But who again is the king? You, you only have a powerful kingdom if you have a powerful king. And the head of the kingdom is the king, and the king is Jesus himself. And so Jesus, for those 40 days, is instructing them on this is how the government, this is how the order, this is how the attitude, all of the things related to operation within the kingdom. But then he says, there won't be any kingdom, there won't be any manifesting of this kingdom until my spirit is poured out upon you. You can't do this on your own. This is a supernatural enterprise. This is beyond your capability. It's beyond your ability to assimilate information, formulate strategy, and implement an attack or a plan. That won't be enough. It won't be enough for you to study what I've said and come up with a plan and try to implement it on your own. It won't be enough. Therefore, I'm just telling you, you wait for something that you don't yet have. Now, folks, listen. If, if, if you and I had been sitting at the feet of the resurrected Jesus for 40 days, we hadn't missed a word he said. We hadn't missed a gesture. We hadn't missed an inflection or an intonation in his voice. We hadn't missed a blink of his eye. There would be enough stirred up inside us that we could probably take on hell with the proverbial water pistol. Just because we had been that close, heard what he said, driven by the sense of closeness to him. But even with all of that, even with word after word after word after word coming out of his mouth, he still says, wait. Wait for what the Father has promised. Wait for what John spoke of. Wait for the outpouring of my spirit upon you and in you. And the result of that and that only will be the power to operate truly and effectively in the kingdom. The electricity that runs the kingdom of God is nothing less than the energy, the power of Jesus Christ himself. Now, it's not enough to know what he said. It's not enough to know what he preferred. Because in our own strength, our will can give up. Our hearts can get disillusioned and discouraged. There's got to be something bigger than you and bigger than me if we're going to stay on the task with faith in our hearts, with love toward him, with compassion toward people out here. Jesus will say, the flesh profits nothing, but it is the spirit that gives life. So here's the question. Have you ever received the promise of the Father? Have you ever received 
the promise of the Father. You say, well, preacher, don't you understand you're talking to saved people? Absolutely, and that's why I'm asking the question. If I, if I ask you, how many of you believe that Jesus died on the cross for you? How many of you believe that your sins are forgiven? How many of you would believe that because of your, your faith in Christ's death for you that you have a place at the Father's table? That heaven is your home. Hands would go up all over the place. And I would love to think that the answer to this second question would also be that is universally attributed and recognized. But have I received the promise of the Father? If the promise of the Father is not the cross, it couldn't be because Jesus is still saying the promise is yet to happen and he's standing past the cross, past the empty tomb. He's saying the promise of the Father is coming. The promise of the Father is yet to be. Now, folks, I'm just encouraging you Don't cross-reference some of your religious background or who you taught you what on this matter of the Spirit. It's just what is it saying? What is the Word saying? And have I received the promise? Well, we continue on. In Acts chapter 2, Peter received. The Spirit was poured out upon them. And then this, this amazing thing happens, these, 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 these folks who had been scared of their shadow, all of a sudden find themselves with a boldness and, and, a, and a ball of freedom that, that, that gave rise to the boldness that no longer was what was being threatened against them going to shut them down. They, they, they somehow now with the presence of the king inside of them and the realization that the one who's alive inside of them and is, 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 is having effect on every molecule within them is infinitely greater than the ones who are posing earthly threats against them. That the fear of man dissipated in the light of the presence of the king within them. That they lost their fear of man. They lost their fear of death. They lost their fear of having to hold on to material things as will be expressed in the latter part of Acts 2 because of the presence of the king. The king had come to fill them. And as a result, they were different. They were different. Go go with me to Acts 2.33. Peter is in the process of explaining what's going on. He says in, in verse 31, he looked ahead, David looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus, God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Now look at verse 33. Every Christian, I want you to look at this. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured forth this which you both see and hear. What you're seeing and hearing is the outpouring of the Spirit upon people. That's the promise of the Father. Continue on, verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain 
that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children. There is an equating right there. You see it? The gift of the Holy Spirit is equated to the promise of the Father. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God, shall call unto himself. In many of the words, he, he, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Verse 41. So then, those who had received his word were baptized. Those who had received his word. His word about what? About who Jesus was, about the criminality of, his, of the death perpetrated against him, but the purpose for that death the freedom from sins that that death, but, but also what he said about the promise, that the Father has made a promise to everyone whom he calls unto himself. And the promise is this, to pour out the spirit of the exalted Jesus into your hearts. He intends that for everyone he's called unto himself. Not just to know that you're forgiven, but to know inside of you that there is someone else who has come to live inside you. It is a felt something. It is not a mental something. It is not a brain something. It is a measurable something within the emotions of the person. I mean, some folks will say, I, I'm just not all that touchy-feely. I'm just not all that into, you know. God didn't ask you. Here's the point, I think. This may be something about who Jesus is that you've never experienced. Maybe you put your faith and trust in him to forgive you of your sins. But what about this matter of receiving in faith as a child, trusting a father, the promise of the father? Again, what I'm trying to encourage here is the understanding this is, this is not a footnote. This is not an addendum to the big deal, to the main story. When you read it like this, it is as if we are to understand that the felt, measurable, known coming of the king by his spirit to live with inside us is the summation, is the goal of everything. The cross makes it possible for us to experience that. But the cross isn't the, isn't the promise. I'm, I'm going to dance on thin ice here a minute. This, um, what about... What about the word? What about the written word? What about the scripture? They didn't have any scripture. They had the Old Testament, but they had no copies of it. So what was the follow-up program on the day of Pentecost? 
They had no gospel of John to pass out. They had no verses on assurance out of 1 John to pass out or Romans 8 to pass out. They had nothing printed. They had no Bible to give to these new converts. What did they have? What was their follow-up? What was their plan? <laughs> Peter just said, "Let's read. can we read the follow-up program again? For 3,000, repent and be baptized, forgiveness of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children, for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. Their follow-up program was, this is the Father's promise. He wants to fill you with the presence of his Son. This crucified but resurrected Jesus, who we can all bear witness of, is indeed alive, and who's given us the ability to speak these words unto you. The bottom line on all of that is that he wants to come out of heaven and he wants to invade your life and he wants to set up the throne of his presence in the center of who you are. That's the promise of the Father. Receive the promise. Receive the promise. Okay, receive the promise. And it would be, hear this, 1,500 years before the church would have a complete New Testament, Old Testament to put in its lap. How did they disciple people? How did they follow up on people? How were they hopeful that someone who says, I want Jesus in my heart, I want to turn away from my sins, that they would stick? Pagan culture, you know, no social media, no TV, no radio, no way to get anything printed. I'm telling you folks, I, I don't understand all about this, but I'm telling you, if we get to substituting the thought that we can take the gospel of John and we can put it in the hands of a new convert, we can take some Romans, put it in there, we can take a little 1 John and put it in there, I've gotten saved, and here's the Bible. Without any mention, without ever even saying, beyond the cross, the Father wants you to know his love for you because of his life within you. Receive the promise of the Father. Receive the living Jesus by his spirit within your heart. Some folk will say, well, that's just the same as getting saved. Well, it can be for some. A simultaneous repentance, receiving Jesus, and then the power of God filling that life and that person is set free and the joy of the Lord begins to rise up. But folks, listen. Think about it. What's the difference between the church today with all the Bibles, with all the reading programs, with all the Christian literature, with all the preachers on TV and who knows what else? What's the difference between us today and these folks? God inside them shook Judaism, rocked Rome to its core, rewrote human history without a copy of the Bible. You say, well, are you minimizing the scripture? Absolutely not. We ought to start our days and be through going through our days with this Bible open 
and us getting back to it every time we catch it. But as I'm doing that, I'm understanding that I can't understand this without the spirit of the king. That, that the scripture was never intended to be a substitute for the Holy Spirit. I'm just absorbed in the word, just absorbed in the word. Well, you can turn into somebody as mean as a snake. Paul says knowledge puffs up. Satan knows all the Bible. The problem isn't how much Bible do you know, but it's how much power are we living in. Power to say no to stuff that's killing us. Power to say yes to stuff that is life. Everything in between doesn't really matter a whole lot because the knowledge isn't changing us. In fact, the knowledge sometimes just increases a sense of condemnation. That's why Jesus said, it's to your advantage that I go away. Because if I don't go away, the helper will not come. The helper being the Holy Spirit, the, Holy, the helper being his presence, being sent, exalted with all manner of means to help us when we're weak and where we're weak. But you shall receive the promise of the Father. Folks say, well, is that a one-time thing, one-time thing? I believe it's just supposed to be as normal as breathing. How many times you got to breathe today? Kick it over into eating. Looking forward to lunch. Wherever there's a sense of need. That's why Jesus would put it in the present active indicative. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give the Holy Spirit, and here's the verb, to those who are asking him. Not those who did ask or will ask, but those who as a way of living, as a part of doing life, waking up on a Monday morning, and Lord, here it is one more time. I've got the same faces to try to be nice to. I got the same questions I got to answer. I got the same stuff I got to get paid by the end of the month, Lord. Help me. Father, I ask you for the promise. I'm asking you for the promise. Folks, listen. I'm just telling you. If you relegate this matter of the life and activity of the Spirit as just some sort of a category or file folder in biblical study, but it's not as real as your breath. It's not as known to you in confidence as something that you've proven to be true, then we're missing the point of the promise of the Father. The promise of the Father. Not a promise, not one of the promises, but the promise. He's able to fulfill the promise because the blood of Jesus has cleansed you from your sins and the cross. That's why now things are free for the Spirit to inhabit. But if we try to wait until everything is fixed and everything is set in order, we'll never cry out for the, for the helper to help. But when we realize that that's part of the name, is the helper, that is his name, the paraclete, the one called alongside to help us, that in the places that we can't, he can. In the places that we won't, he will but it's a matter of you asking. 
you asking. You asking. Lord, I don't know what all of this means. I don't know all of this, how it applies to me. But I want this. The promise of the Father as it applies to my life. The helper to help me. Not just help in the general worldwide sense, but Lord, you know me. You know where I need help. I want your promise, Lord. Lord, I want you to baptize me with your spirit and with fire. Lord, I'm asking you for the kingdom to come as Jesus spoke that it, that, that it would, that you would pour out your spirit and you would fill me. I can tell you that over the years of having this working in my heart, decades, there will be some folks who hear this and just cruise right on, right on past it, as if, oh, that's, I don't need that. But there will be the ones, in the, like the faces, of many of whom I'm looking at this morning. Lord, I don't want to miss a thing. And I prayed that you would fill me. I prayed that, that you would forgive me. I've, I've, I've asked you to save me. But here's the second prayer. Here's this other prayer that we didn't get to last week that can change everything. Lord, fill me. Lord, fill me. Again, if you see it as a footnote, if you see it as a non-essential, if you see your personal study of the Scripture as a replacement for the work of the Spirit giving you energy and life and joy and hope and being able to understand the Scripture, then you may never get off. You can make the Scripture, put the Scripture in a role that it was never intended to be. We're never told to worship the Scripture. The worship is that which drives us back to Him. You, you, sometimes we, we think because I've got all this knowledge, got all this understanding, it really is a substitute for the helper. And we think about folks that are crying out to be filled with the Spirit as just sort of some sort of inadequate, you know, little, 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 little low down the food chain that they don't really understand. They just need more knowledge. No, you need more knowledge, and your knowledge is your knowledge isn't enough, and you need the Spirit. And just wait, now here I go. Just wait until you hit you hit a wall, break your nose, bloody your, you know, you break your hand because you've been trying to do something in your own strength, and the Lord is just saying, I. I want to help. I'm here to help. Ask me to fill you. The cross is not the same as the promise. Have you received the cross but not embraced the promise? One of my areas of study in seminary was the history of revival and awakening. I spent a lot of time, read a lot of material and so forth on the subject. One of, one of the great frustrations on the matter of mass evangelism, large meetings, whether it be Billy Graham or Charles Finney or D.L. Moody or whoever it would be, 
is where's the proof that it did any good? Where's the abiding fruit? And there, there would be many, there would be many, yes, but out of the thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands that might respond in a series of meetings, six months goes by, a year goes by, to, and researchers were unable to find them. There is one exception, and there are, there are exceptions, but one notable historical exception. It's called the revival in Wales in 1904, 1905. There's a young Welsh coal miner named Evan Roberts who got saved. Life was being changed, turned. The Lord put within his heart to pray for revival, spiritual awakening in Wales. But here was the prayer. And just about every place he went, if not every place he went, to the congregations, the small gatherings, the large that he would meet with, this was the prayer. Lord, send your spirit for Christ's sake. Not, not an emphasis on the preacher, send your spirit, believing that and when the spirit is poured out, John, Jesus spoke in John, that he will, the spirit will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. It's not up to the preacher, not up to the witness. It's up to the Spirit to do that work. Lord, send your Spirit for Christ's sake. In six months, revival broke out. There was no central preacher. There was, there were, Robert, Evan Roberts would not even let them announce where he would be next. He wouldn't tell people. He didn't want it to be something that, that he was trying to energize or, or, or get credit for in any way. There were other preachers that, that emerged. And the people, such a sense of the presence of the Lord in the land that the people would leave work at four, go to the church, sing and praise and pray and listen to preaching all night long and go to work back the next morning about daylight. And they did that for six months. In six months' time, it was reported that 100,000, 100,000 adults had prayed to receive Christ as Savior and Lord. And when they went back to try to check the stand-up results, they were somewhat disappointed that about five years into it, they could only account for 95% of the professions of faith being in a church somewhere. There is some sort of a statement in that. Where there is, where there is an outright, very clear, Reliance upon the work of the Spirit to empower the witness, but to fall upon the listeners. And that as a result of what he's doing in their lives, they're being taught. Open your heart to the promise of the Father. Ask him to fill you up with the promise of the Father. Ask him that the Spirit would be poured out that you would be baptized with his spirit and with fire like John said would happen. And then whatever happens from there, that's up to the Lord. However he chooses to demonstrate that. And the book of Acts is, is full of certain things that can be noted, but it's, it's very clear on many things. One of them is the spirit being poured out on one person may not be the same manifestation as being poured out on another person. 
You can't clone it. But what you can be certain of, it's the presence of the living Jesus who's come to take up possession in that heart. And it's way more than just academic, mental, check a box, I did that, been there, done that, no big deal. It's how you live. It's how you start into Monday. It's how you look at your children, how you look at your wife or your husband, how you look at friends, how we look at the rest of the year. Lord, fill me with your spirit. Apart from you, I can do nothing. But I want to know your promise. I want to receive and experience the promise of the Father in my life. My encouragement to you is you get off by yourself with the Lord and you talk this out with him. And ask him, Lord, have I ever received the promise of the Father? Some of you would know. Some of you know exactly what that's. I've had ones come up and say, Pastor, I know what that filling of the Spirit is about. And would give testimony and examples of how in work settings, specific things had been set up and done. But that may be why some of you struggle so much in your Christian life. Is that somehow you think, been taught, the promised part's been left out. I received Jesus as my Savior, and here's the Bible over here, and here's church over here, and i got to get all the Bible and do all the church stuff that I can, but in the process, truth is, my heart's drying up, and I, and I don't know what's wrong. What if what has become a footnote or an asterisk or just a, just a little epilogue kind of a thing is a main point that you've missed. But oh my goodness, we don't have to miss it long. <laughs> we don't have to miss it long. We don't have to miss it long. You ask him and he'll let you know. You ask the promise giver to let you know. And then you receive his promise. And it's one and the same with the kingdom coming with the Spirit being poured out with fire and the Spirit of the Lord, with His Spirit and with, and with fire. It's one and the same with the gift of the Spirit, the promise of the Father. I, I, don't, I don't really know of anything else more important. The cross gets you here. The blood of Jesus gives you access. But trusting in the cross is not the same as the promise of the Father. Wow. Lord, whatever that means for us, would you make it clear? Would you show us by your Spirit, from your Word, and that which be recognized deep within our hearts, that which is truth to us? Lord, we want your promise. We want to receive your promise. We want to receive your gift. Please, Lord, open our eyes where we've missed it. Show us the way. Put faith in our hearts to receive. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen and amen.